the History Channel original podcast. Are you looking forward to this year's draft? Like, are you expecting it to be any different from other years for you? <laughs> uh, well, this year's draft is in Kansas City, so it's probably going to be cold so again. Cold, yeah. <laughs> this is ESPN NFL analyst Mina Kimes. Perhaps most importantly, there are some pretty fun quarterbacks, and there's a lot of teams right now that need quarterbacks. That's the thing. So where's Anthony Richardson going? <laughs> That's he's the biggest wild card in the draft. Is, could go first, could go ninth, tenth. It could be all over the place. Tomorrow, the NFL will hold its 88th annual player selection draft. The 2023 edition will air across three TV networks over three days, with hundreds of thousands of football fans visiting Kansas City to celebrate the biggest party of the offseason calendar. But let's rewind the clock to the first NFL draft aired live on national TV. Sports history this week, April 29th, 1980. I'm Kalen Jones. It's the 45th NFL Draft. Inside the Sheraton Hotel in New York City, Commissioner Pete Rozelle stands on stage with a huge NFL shield looming behind him. Other than that, it doesn't look anything like the draft today. Surrounding the commissioner, each team has its own table with fabric tablecloths. Very classy. Massive chandeliers hang overhead. And this year, there's a new addition to the room. TV cameras. For those tuning in at home, the title flashes on screen. ESPN presents the 1980 NFL Draft. You've probably heard of the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, better known as ESPN. But in 1980, they are brand new and looking to build a relationship with the NFL. Maybe the draft is their way in. The only problem, will anyone actually care? Some worry that it'll just be a televised version of reading names out of a phone book. Commissioner Roselle stands on a raised platform and reads name after name through the first round, the second, third, fourth. The production values are not very good. Only some of the players picked have highlight packages. Wrong graphics show up a few times. By the end of the day, the telecast feels like it's gone on forever. It was kind of the Marvel T. Ford of the draft at that time. While a decent amount of people tuned into the 1980 draft, these days, it pulls in more than 10 million viewers. It's wild, man. It's like being at a festival. Today, for the first time, ESPN televises the NFL draft. It's a humble start for what would become a TV phenomenon. But before being broadcast... How did the very first draft come to be? And how did an experimental telecast lead to the NFL dominating the sports conversation all year long? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When the NFL is founded in 1920, players are free to sign with any team they'd like every season. So for 15 years, players control their professional futures. In 1935, the top prospect uses the system to his advantage. So the top player coming out of college at that time was Stan Koska. This is Ken Crippen, a football historian. You might recognize him from our season one episode about the birth of the NFL. And what he did was he kind of pitted teams against each other. So he would get a contract offer from Team X, and then he would turn around to the other teams that were interested and say, hey, I got this offer, can you beat it? This is a big problem for NFL teams, being forced to fight over prospects. Upton Bell is a former NFL general manager and the son of Burt Bell, former owner of the Philadelphia Eagles. I know the whole history from the minute God created the NFL to today. In 1936, Upton's father, Bert, is frustrated his team can't sign the players he wants. He had just decided, I'm not going to get screwed by other people. The players see they can take advantage of it. We need something to balance the league. So Bert Bell goes to the team owners and proposes a draft, where teams with the worst records get the chance to pick top college prospects. The hope, even out the competition around the league and empower squads with less money. And finally, by a couple of votes, he got his idea, his brainchild passed. Reps for all nine NFL teams meet in Philadelphia for the first ever draft in 1936. There are no players present, no media. It's just a quiet gathering inside a Ritz-Carlton. And that's how it continued for over 40 years. Little hype. No TV cameras. Even into the 40s and maybe early 50s, players didn't even know that they were drafted. But 1979 is much different than 1936. Not only are there TVs in almost every home, cable TV is on the rise. And on September 7th, a little media startup called ESPN becomes available to millions across the U.S. They've got their sights set on an untapped segment of the market. If you're a fan, what you'll see in the next minutes, hours, and days to follow may convince you you've gone to sports heaven. ESPN sets up in a small office space in Bristol, Connecticut. Their flagship program is called SportsCenter. The network's purpose is simple. And right now, you're standing on the edge of tomorrow. Sports, 24 hours a day, seven days a week with ESPN. ESPN is the world's first 24-hour network. They have a lot of time to fill, which is tough, considering it has no relationship with a major sports league. Here's Peter King, a legendary NFL columnist. People are still trying to get used to the fact that somebody put a 24-hour sports channel on TV and said, this is insane. This will never work. Craig Ellenport, a senior editor at Sports Illustrated, explains how desperate the young network is for content. 
and they were televising Australian rules football and slow pitch softball games and things like that. They even have a theme song making it clear that sports are baked right into their DNA. For ESPN, it's of primal importance to build a relationship with a major sports league. In January of 1980, ESPN president Chet Simmons has a chance to make it happen. During the week of Super Bowl XIV in Pasadena, California, NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle bumps into Simmons. He commends ESPN's work, then asks what they'll do in the springtime. Simmons says, hopefully, televise the NFL draft. Pete Rozelle said, why? Why would you want to do that? No one is going to watch this. There is some basis for televising an NFL draft. In 1977, a PBS station out of Boston covered it for two days, though only locally and without a view of the inside of the draft room. Roselle talks with other executives and decides airing the 1980 draft on ESPN could keep football relevant during the offseason on a national level. Sure enough, he took it to the 28 owners and they all unanimously said, no, there's no way we're going to do this. Roselle still likes the idea. Since he's been commissioner, he's emphasized connecting the NFL with television, nailing down the league's first major TV deals in the 60s, and pushing for the creation of NFL films. It's still ultimately just a player selection meeting as the NFL wanted to term it as, so why would televising it be appealing? While you might think, on face, that there's nothing particularly interesting about the reading of names at a podium. Richard Deitch, senior writer for The Athletic. But I think Roselle knew there was great interest in the NFL and anything that the NFL did and that fans would ultimately consume anything that had to do with their team. Roselle says, quote, call Chet Simmons and tell him that he's going to do the draft as a news event and we can't stop him from covering it. The question now, what's this thing going to look like? Simmons puts a guy named Bill Fitz in charge, who's led TV production on five Super Bowls. Fitz goes to Simmons and says, quote, Chet, do you realize nothing is happening there? It's just people on a podium. Simmons tells him, make it into a production. Fitz has two months and a limited budget to make it happen. He starts by organizing a broadcasting crew, finding reporters to pick up fan reactions. Then he locks down info. What do teams need? Who are the top draft prospects? And what about highlight reels? Anything they want, they have to gather themselves. The reality is they were making up a lot of this stuff as it went along. April 29, 1980. The large brick Sheraton Hotel stands a few blocks south of Central Park on a cloudy morning. Inside, more than 200 people wander around a ballroom. Team representatives get situated at their tables with signs displaying logos and helmets. At the front of the ballroom, there's a platform and lectern where Commissioner Roselle will stand, now in front of TV cameras. And off to the right, for the first time, ESPN has its own setup, a small desk with a couple people on it. Prior to the draft coverage, it was exercise programming. Switching it over to the NFL, that was a big deal. 
That's incredible. I mean, I can't imagine seeing like stretching or ads for, you know, like some type of a muscle trainer or something. At 10 a.m., the cameras roll. ESPN and now the NFL Draft is available to 4 million homes across the U.S. Photos of college football players pop onto the screen. A few action clips of guys scoring touchdowns play. Then, the 25-year-old anchor for the draft, Bob Lee, welcomes viewers. Richard Deitch compares it to watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. The Detroit Lions are the first team on the clock. They have 13 minutes before they must hand in their choice to Roselle. When they do, he stands up and announces, the Detroit Lions select Billy Sims, a running back from the University of Oklahoma. Right after that, action tape plays on TV screens around the country. And we were open up between film of the player and then how he was drafted and then getting comments from the league headquarters. The telecast producers switch over to their studios in Connecticut to a team of commentators. It was Vince Papali and Bob Lee and Upton Bell was another one of the analysts. It looked like how you'd imagine 1980s local news to look like. The four men sit in a line. In front of them, a coffee table is covered with piles of dotes and coffee mugs. Behind them are flags of each NFL team. Again, here's Upton Bell himself, one of the commentators for ESPN's 1980 draft broadcast. How would you describe what it was like to be there? There was no assignment except give your opinion. I said, oh my God, this is great, free for all. The 49ers had the second pick, but they traded to the New York Jets. ESPN shows Jets fans cheering on a balcony. In a separate interview, a reporter is asking the Jets fan to predict who they'll take, but cuts him off mid-sentence to announce the pick. The timing is not there. It's a little discombobulated. Incorrect graphics appear. Some top picks don't even have highlight reels. The picks keep coming. Five hours turns into six, seven. By the eighth hour, the draft reaches only the fourth round. After the 100th pick, eight hours and 15 minutes have passed before the broadcast finally ends. Bob Lee speaks to the audience. It has been a unique experience, a novel experience, the first time ever attempted and certainly accomplished. We hope you have enjoyed being with us. The 1980 draft is over. A lot of things worked, but a lot didn't too. The next day, the Hartford Current calls it a neat experiment. To those at ESPN, it's not clear if this experiment is a success or if they'll ever be able to do it again. Little do they know that the NFL draft is about to blow up. You had to be an idiot not to see that this thing was gonna be big. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. After the very first televised NFL draft in 1980, it's not clear if ESPN is going to do another one. I don't think they really had any idea as to what they had at the beginning. They knew they had something. They weren't exactly sure what it was. Sure enough, ESPN gives the green light to televise the draft again next year. What was it about it that went well enough for them to be like, okay, we're going to do this, aside from the fact that they invested the resources into it and there wasn't 20 million people on Twitter yelling about how they don't like a camera angle or don't like a certain analyst yelling. I think, honestly, they just liked that it was a successful production in that the throwing back and forth between New York and Bristol worked. Like, the live shots of the fans at the ballroom worked. What they realized is that they had a television show. From 1980, the draft slowly finds its legs. It becomes more coordinated. College prospects start getting interviewed, and pro players start contributing to coverage. Camera quality becomes less grainy. There's better pacing to it. And... ESPN knows how to play up the drama. And we are just moments away from the start of this 1983 draft. April 26, 1983. The draft is full of big-name quarterbacks, including John Elway, Jim Kelly, and Dan Marino. Fans are on the edge of their seats. There's debate over whether a team will trade up with the Baltimore Colts for the number one pick to choose Elway. And I don't know if there's a trade in the wind or whether they're going to take Elway or just what. Here's Peter King. Everybody knows in the NFL that teams are only good if you got a good quarterback. And if you think back to the 1983 draft, there were five or six really good quarterbacks in that draft. And there was a wide disparity of opinion about who was the best and where might they get picked. With the first overall pick, the Baltimore Colts select John Elway. But it's still an open question. Will they keep him? The Broncos are on the clock with the fourth pick. So there's three solid choices that you could make a good case for Denver making, or they might, again, like we talked earlier, might even be working out a trade possibly with Baltimore to, uh, to, get, to get John Elway. So uh, this really holds the key to the rest of the draft right now, what Denver does. There were so many storylines, and that really, I think, the 1983 draft is the one that started everybody saying, okay, I'm watching the draft. I'm at least going to watch until my team gets its pick. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Quarterbacks absolutely factor into people paying attention to how, you know, the draft works. Later in the draft, Dan Marino gets selected by the Miami Dolphins with the 27th pick. There's speculation he falls down the draft board due to rumors around drug use. Six days later, the Colts trade Elway to Denver. There are rumors Elway had refused to join Baltimore, threatening to go pro in baseball instead. It's these kind of player narratives that become a big selling point for the draft. There are heroic archetypes, like the generational stars, hidden gems, and football obsessives. 
there are also negative ones. The overrated, the brand focus, and even the stereotype. It's just wild seeing how those narratives influence. Like, do they influence how we perceive those players? Oh, absolutely. And I would say, not even just in the draft, but like beyond. This is Charles McDonald, an NFL columnist and reporter at Yahoo Sports. He explains player narratives are a powerful tool even today. Like with Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson, who, during the 2023 offseason, is trying to negotiate his second contract. I find it hard for me to believe as we sit through this Lamar Jackson contract situation and the way that he gets discussed, to me, there's absolutely some some linger and some holdover on how people viewed him coming into the draft. Is he going to be able to pick up pro-style offense? Is he smart enough to know he needs to hire an agent? Is he smart enough to know that this is the best deal he's going to get? But as ESPN's Mita Kimes explains, when it comes to assessing players... As an analyst, your job is to try to break outside of those narratives. Narratives can be based on hearsay. They can be based on preconceived notions about players. Our job is to try to question them at every turn so that we can actually evaluate these players and meet them where they are. By 1985, a face that's still around today enters the NFL draft picture, Mel Kuyper Jr. Before 1980, it was tough for the average fan to care about the draft because no one really knows who all the prospects are or how they'll translate to the NFL. Enter Kuyper. It was frustrating because there was just a lack of information out there about the NFL draft, which certainly from the time I remember being six, seven, eight years old, I had an interest in because that's the only way you could improve your football team from year to year. That's Kuyper in an NFL Films interview. In 1979, he begins publishing a draft preview guide to fill the void. After seeing the first televised draft a year later, he says to himself, there's got to be a market for this. Over the years, his presence as the biggest draft-focused analyst grows. I think Mel Kuyper has been, in, in the media, the single most important person to making the draft huge. Production of the draft itself improves. ESPN finds more ways to capitalize on the draft's magnetism, airing more college football, publishing mock drafts, focusing on it as soon as the Super Bowl ends. It's just the, the appetite is, in, is insatiable. It's a conscious effort by the NFL. And the effort was, why does baseball own its offseason? And why at the end of the football season does everybody just forget about us? And maybe they think about us for three or four days around the draft, but really they don't think about us until August. You know, when teams are playing preseason games and starting to get going. And the NFL made the conscious decision that we are going to make professional football a year-round enterprise. In 1988, the NFL moves the draft to the weekend to improve viewership. In 1993, they show all eight rounds and 224 picks. Yes, that's one more round than we have now. There are highlights for every selection. Leading up to the draft, the public popularity of college all-star games grows in tandem with pro days, where colleges host scouts to meet and work out prospects. By 2004, another event gets added to the televised pre-draft content cycle, the Combine. The Combine, where I had the honor of meeting you two years ago, I guess, like, what role does the Combine play in terms of draft coverage and even the draft's growth over the years? You know, the Combine has basically 
fueled the growth of the draft without any question. The NFL Combine, also known as the Underwear Olympics, began in 1977. It's an invitation-only event where teams can evaluate players' athleticism in person. Top college prospects are measured for speed, strength, and personality. In 2004, the Combine becomes a made-for-TV event, showing all the standardized workouts live from Indianapolis up close, for good and for bad. Check out big fella dancing like a ballerina. Stort Schweiger, safety from Purdue, 6'2", 209. He ran a 4.49, which is excellent. Peter King says the Combine is built to funnel more eyes toward the NFL draft itself. It is a gigantic commercial for what's to come in two months, which is on the last weekend of April. There is something about the NFL Combine that makes many uncomfortable. There are undeniably racial dynamics at play. How do you feel as a fellow Black person watching these Black dudes basically run around in their underwear for these white owners to be selected where they don't have a choice? <laughs> Remember I was talking to my barber before I went to Indianapolis. I got the, the combat coming up next week. He's like, oh, you going to the auction? I was like, ah, yep, <laughs> yep. That's exactly where I'm going. I do find it weird because I understand the value of if I'm going to invest millions of dollars in an athlete, I would like to know how athletic they are. It's just weird, you know, like you have these guys literally getting poked and prodded all week. Then they're out there in spandex running around trying to see how fast they are. It, it is weird. One anthropologist writes that the combine is mostly focused on the potential of the black male athletic body. Players are dehumanized, studied for their physical and psychological attributes. Still, it's a staple of the NFL offseason calendar, helping establish player value and where they'll get selected in the draft itself. Mina Kimes has her reservations about the combine and even the draft. First and foremost, it's a form of wage suppression. <laughs> we should start there. Since 2011, the NFL has put a cap on the value of rookie contracts. That's an issue considering the average NFL career lasts just three years, meaning most players don't earn much beyond their rookie contract. And while the system makes rosters more competitive... The downside of it is that for certain players, it means they won't ever get paid what they're actually worth. But whatever controversy underneath, the NFL has managed to turn the draft into one of the biggest days on the sports calendar. By the 2000s, the draft has gone from a hotel banquet room to setting up shop at the famous Radio City Music Hall. The production value and the, the timing of it and everything they do to put a draft broadcast together is night and day from what they used to do. Fans have year-long interest thanks to widespread access to analysis. As scouting grows inside the league, countless draft experts and commentators emerge on the outside. Fans also get smarter, better informed, and they want more. I mean, they're already talking about April the 30th like it's, you know, the second coming of Christ. ESPN and NFL Network each air their own live broadcasts simultaneously. Top prospects aren't just attending the draft now, but going up on stage and embracing league commissioner Roger Goodell. By 2010, the draft makes its primetime premiere, and hugging Goodell is a certified ritual. Everybody looks forward to the hugathon between Roger Goodell and the players. Nowadays, there's more pageantry to the NFL draft. It's grown from popular telecasts to popular events. Upton Bell. People that can make it look like a movie, look like a studio show, 
look like uncontrolled screaming and, and yelling and, and everything else. That element, I think, really makes it. I turn it on. I just want to watch how the fans react. I'm waiting someday for one of these people to try and carry the commissioner off the stage. Who the hell knows? Oh, my gosh. Upton, you are made for television, man. You give some beautiful quotes. In 2015, Roger Goodell decides that, after 50 years in New York City, the NFL draft should be held in new locations. Everybody said Goodell was an idiot for doing this. You own New York City for a couple of days. You're at Radio City Music Hall. You have red carpet in Midtown Manhattan. It's really cool. Players love it. It's wonderful. But what the NFL found is, yeah, it's wonderful. But let's see what happens if we go out and share this with the world. And now, because the NFL has come to town, they have made it a really, really big deal in every city that it comes to. Does moving it out of New York and being able to go from city to city to city, does that help affirm the draft as being like sort of a destination or attraction for fans during the offseason? What they want to do is they want to try to make things feel like an event. Like that's the key word is an event versus a game. First pick in the 2019 NFL draft, the Arizona Cardinals select Kyler Murray. April 25th, 2019. The NFL Draft is in Nashville, Tennessee. 600,000 fans face the enormous temporary stage that's appeared in front of the Cumberland River. They feel every part of the main drag, Broadway. The neon lights of each bar and restaurant light up the fans. For Mina Kimes, this draft in particular stands out. I just remember feeling like I was at like Bonnaroo or something. Just the crowds and, and the excitement and... It makes sense because in the same way people are fans of bands, they're fans of teams and they're fans of football. And it's not just about players being drafted. In Nashville, the NFL throws a free festival headlined by country musician Tim McGraw. Former players and celebrities are announcing the picks and then wandering the area. There's interactive games. Over three days, telecasts reach nearly 50 million total viewers. The 2019 draft breaks records as the highest rated and most watched draft ever. The draft is a party like this every year now. Cities buy to host it, just like the Super Bowl. How crazy is it to cover the NFL draft nowadays? It's crazy when you consider like what it was even 10, 15, 20 years ago, but it's not crazy when you think about how big NFL fandom is, the fact that it doesn't seem to be shrinking. What is the pull? Like, what is the draw? What What's the attraction of the draft? It makes perfect sense when you think about it. I mean, only one team wins the Super Bowl every year. And for the fans of 31 other teams, once those teams are eliminated, they're already thinking ahead to next year. How can my team get better? Especially if your team sucks. You know, there's a lot of things that I don't, that are worthy of criticism when it comes to the draft. But I think aside from these college players' dreams coming true, which is probably my favorite part of it, the other thing that's so appealing about it is it's a source of perpetual hope for fans. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1960, the NBA's Minneapolis Lakers moved to Los Angeles, where they still play today. 1975, college students played the first organized Ultimate Frisbee tournament. 
If you want to get in touch, feel free to email us at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We love to hear from our fans and non-fans too. Special thanks to our guests, Upton Bell, former general manager of the New England Patriots and son of Burt Bell, founder of the NFL Draft. Richard Deitch, senior writer covering sports media for The Athletic. Craig Ellenport, senior editor at Sports Illustrated. Mina Kimes, NFL analyst at ESPN. Peter King, longtime NFL columnist, now at NBC. And Charles McDonald, NFL columnist and reporter at Yahoo Sports. This episode was produced by Cooper McKim. Story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by the Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingberg. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our senior producer is Ben Dixton. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. 2023 Annie Television Networks LLC. All rights reserved.